True Crime friends, and welcome to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I'm your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you're all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I really hope it gets better for you. I'm glad that you all have stuck with me thus far. I can't believe we're finally at the end of this Danny Rowling series, and then we won't have to ever talk about him ever, 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 ever again. Yeah, this one's pretty rough, guys, So it's and it's pretty sadistic, so I would drink a glass of wine or some sort of strong drink, even if you aren't triggered by that stuff, just because it's it's still really rough. And obviously, again, if you are not comfortable with murder, mutilation of bodies, decapitation, things like that, then yeah, you might want to skip this episode, too. Just the whole Danny Rowling series you should probably skip if that is (laughs) something that really triggers you. Just because, again, his story is really sad. And today we are finally at the conclusion, like I said. So we never have to talk about him ever, ever again. (laughs) Alright, so with that, let's get into it. So if you remember at last week's episode with Danny Rowling, we left off as Danny was getting fired from a job working at a buffet back in his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Danny, of course, had a temper tantrum, although I wish it was more like the scene from Half-Baked. But during this time, Danny wasn't just working at the buffet. He had also taken interest in peeping on a family, the Grissoms. The family consisted of Father Tom Grissom, his daughter Julie, who is 24, and her nephew slash his grandson, Sean, who is 8. Danny would peep on the Grissoms mainly during their morning routine. Two nights before Danny was fired, he broke into the Grissoms' household and killed all three family members. I will spare you the full details of this murder, especially because it, well, and specifically because it involves the murder of an eight-year-old child. I will tell you that all of the family members were stabbed with Daniel Rowling's K-bar knife, and Julie was left positioned by rolling in a lewd position with bite marks on her body. Their bodies were discovered two days after Danny Rowling was fired. So, we see Danny's graduated to murder. Oh, goodness. I mean, we knew it was coming, but still. You know, not only did he, you know, he, he killed an entire family, but he killed an eight-year-old child. Like oh my god like there's something so twisted i think that goes on in the minds of these killers that that just makes them kill a child like i don't i'm not sure and you know i'm not sure if he could technically be called a family annihilator considering he didn't kill his family but again he still killed a family so i'm not entirely sure that that counts i feel like danny might have started watching them out of fascination, and maybe even jealous of their family life. Because it seems by all accounts the Grissoms had a normal family life and were definitely, obviously, more normal than Danny ever would have experienced. 
So I'm not sure also if he may have been attracted to Julia, but given the injuries that she suffered and the way that she was positioned might suggest sexual motivation. Personally, like I said, I think Danny just felt jealous watching the family. And I think that that made him realize that obviously, like I said, his family was not normal. And to see what a normal family looked like, I think just filled him with so much rage that he, or not even just filled him with rage because he already had it. But I think it just added to it. And eventually he just snapped. And, you know, not that he had the right to kill them, obviously, but again, just given all of the abuse he suffered as a child, I could see how him seeing like a lovely or a loving family could trigger that rage. A year later, Danny and his father James had another fight. Are we surprised? No. Danny became so enraged that he shot his father twice in the stomach and once in the head. I mean, fortunately, he did not kill James. Later, Danny left home and started traveling around before finally setting his sights on Gainesville, Florida. You know, I know I shouldn't condone killing another... And I'm not condoning killing another person, but come on. Come on. Don't you all kind of... I mean, I personally kind of wish that that piece of shit of a father died. You know, I mean, I and I honestly thought he was going to when they said they shot him three times, especially one injury to the head. I mean, that's pretty severe. And I'm not sure that many people would have been able to have survived that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where entirely he shot him in the head. I know that in some very rare circumstances dense the skull or you know sometimes depending on the caliber of the bullet and things like and the proximity of the range and things like that sometimes it won't penetrate the skull or if it does it cracks but it doesn't necessarily penetrate the brain and even in some cases when I think it can it doesn't do as much damage obviously as having a bullet go through your entire brain so I think that was what I thought or no I know that's what I thought (laughs) Initially, when I heard this, like, I just saw a bullet going straight through one end of this temp- one temple and coming up the other. But that is not what happened. But, you know, and I mean, I have to say, if I was going to trade James for uh, the Grissom family, I think I would have. Every single day. Every time. Now, there are a few different versions of how or why Danny settled in Florida. One of the more common reasons was that he had seen The Exorcist 3. And found a sign. Not entirely familiar with this movie. I, I watched the first one, but I've never seen the third one. But I know that the master demon in this film is known as Gemini. And apparently Danny felt that he had figured out that Gemini was one of the demons living inside of him. I don't remember if you guys remember, but we discussed this in part one. No, part two. Part two is when we brought this up, where he thought he was, um, it was when he was married to Amantha. He thought he was having, or thought he had demons inside of him, and he was seeing Jesus, and yeah, it was, yeah. So he took this as a sign, I guess, and somehow he believed that Gemini was telling him to go to Florida to commit more murders. 
It always intrigues me when killers like the Amityville horror murder, Ronald DeFeo Jr., you know, said the whole, you know, the devil made me do it excuse. But like now in DeFeo's case, I feel like there's some paranormal evidence to suggest that maybe that could have possibly been the case. I'm not 100% sure if I still, if I believe in it entirely. Um, I don't know. It's just a hard concept to wrap my brain around sometimes. And I mean, I, cause most of the time I feel like, or the majority of exorcists are really just people who are mentally disabled or have some sort of mental disorder or issue that, you know, needs to be handled by a medical professional and not a priest chanting, the power of Christ compels you. So, yeah. Um, but in, like I said, so in DeFeo's case, there was paranormal activity going on in the house. Again, whether you believe that or not, that's, you know, the paranormal evidence that's, that's there. But in Danny's case, I feel like he's just trying to rationalize the violent thoughts in his head by making them a demon. Which I can understand. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily healthy. Because in a way, you're projecting onto something that isn't you, even though you are the one in control. And you are the origin of these thoughts. So, but at the same time, I, I feel like it was just a lot easier for him to digest rather than to just admit to yourself that you're the one in control of the violence that you create in your past. So, I, I think just, you know, I think that's a possibility there. When Danny arrived in Florida, he went under a new identity of Michael Kennedy Jr. He checked into a motel, but later set up a camp in the woods near the University of Florida. Danny made several recordings to his mother Claudia and his brother Kevin leading up to the first murder. In the last recording, he tells them not to worry about him, that he's a big boy who can take care of himself. The creepiest part of the recording is at the end. Danny says that he has some things to take care of. And that night was when he committed the first of the University of Florida murders. So, again, I'm just letting everybody know. Brace yourself. It gets pretty gory and pretty violently graphic from here on out. On August 24th, 1990, Danny broke into the apartment of two college freshmen, Christina Powell and Sonia Larson. Danny brought his K-bar knife and a pistol. According to the reports, Danny killed Sonia first. He duct taped her mouth and then stabbed her to death. He crept into Christina's bedroom while she was, while she was asleep, duct taped her mouth, just like he had Sonia's. Then he cut off her clothes, sexually assaulted her, raped her, and then killed her. Danny then went back up to Sonia's room and raped her dead body. When he was done, he positioned the girls in lewd positions, cleaned up the scene, threw bloody clothes in the dumpster. And it wasn't until Danny was riding, like, on his bike back to the campsite that he realized he had cut off the nipples of Christina. These girls were only 17 at the time of their deaths. Those poor girls. I mean, I think also just him not... Like, first of all, this crime is extremely violent, extremely bloody, and again, sexually motivated. He does rape both girls. 
And the fact that he didn't realize that he had cut off Christina's nipples until afterwards, I think just explains, or not even, I shouldn't even say that it explains, but I think it could offer the idea that maybe he was blacked out or in some sort of mental state where he, not to say that he didn't know what he was doing. It's not like he didn't plan this. His murders were premeditated. As I said, he thought Gemini wanted him to come down the floor and kill some people. He was just picking which ones. So, because of that, again, though, I feel like maybe he was in such a state. Because I'm sure, like, adrenaline's pumping, you know, his hormones are raging, or, you know, things are going on like that. So, I, I'm not entirely sure, but... Yeah, just because, again, that's such a weird fucking thing to not remember, you know? And the thing about the lewd positions is that it seemed to be, from what I saw from the crime scene photos, you can find them out there. I don't suggest you look for them. You know, if you're having a hard time listening to this, then I, yeah, I, that might not be a good idea. But, the, like I said, the lewd positions were from what they seemed to be, was that they were lying on their backs on towards the edge of the bed with their legs open. And this seemed to be across the board for Danny's victims. And again, those poor girls, they didn't deserve that. Guys, let me tell you about my friend Mandy. She makes some of the most beautiful crocheted goods and decorations I have truly ever seen. The holidays are just around the corner, so you're either going to be looking for that super unique gift or that super special ornament or decoration for your home. Do yourself a favor. Go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It on Facebook and Instagram, and slide into her DMs. Trust me, you are just going to love everything she has to offer. I already have a few pumpkins from her. I have a really nice crocheted headband that keeps me warm in the winter. And of course, my very, very favorite Coraline doll. So if you're looking for cool decorations, or if you're looking for that super special gift, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram to order now. The next night, Danny broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Christina Holt. Following the same MO, Danny raped her before stabbing her to death. This time, he decided to take it a step further and completely decapitated Christina. He then placed her head on the bookshelf across from her body that was, again, suggestively posed, like the others, at the end of the bed, with her nipples next to her. I can't even begin to describe how incredibly sadistic Christina's murder is. Obviously, all of the murders are sadistic and fucked up, but this is by far the most vile. I mean, he... He literally decapitated her head and put it on the bookshelf in a way so that it looked like her head was watching her body. Like, I I can't imagine what it must have been like to be one of the first responders on the scene, or even the forensic team who had to go through and process the scene. 
you know, it is one thing to brutally murder and pose a body after death. But again, like I said, just the whole decapitation and putting it right across as if she's watching her, like her head's watching. I know I haven't mentioned this before, but like this, it totally makes sense to me why Danny Rowling is the inspiration behind the movie Scream. I totally get it now. Completely. But it's just so, so terrible. And we still have two more murders to get through, guys. We can do this. Two days later, on August 27th, 1990, Danny broke into his third and final college apartment. It was the home of Tracy Pauls, who was 23, and her boyfriend, Manuel Taboda, who was also 23. Both victims were stabbed to death. It's unclear if Danny raped Tracy, but neither of the bodies were suggestively posed this time. There was some speculation that he could have been interrupted before doing so. At first, Danny wasn't on the police's radar. Up until this point, he was literally only known as a thief, not a killer. Police looked into a man named Edward Humphrey and eventually arrested him for the murders. However, there was little to no evidence supporting that Edward committed these heinous murders. They were desperate to close the case and put the university students and families, you know, let alone the city, at ease. So they kept pursuing charges against Humphrey. Which I kind of feel bad. That's really shitty. I mean, and the only reason I say I kind of feel bad is because one of the main reasons that he was suspected was because he had attacked his grandmother and had had scratches on his face from it. So, I mean, again, not so great, but... I mean, obviously, you should never attack your grandmother or any old woman or anyone in general. But he was also known to be mentally unstable and off his medications. So I think that probably was a psychotic outburst, unfortunately. Not to say that he shouldn't be held responsible because he does have a responsibility to take his medications so those things don't happen. But again, it's, you know, just... A, a reason. And I never say they're good reasons. They're just reasons. But he was also known to carry a knife. So based off of him having a knife and the scratches on his face, they kind of thought it was him. But they also felt that the fibers and hairs could have been his. But I don't think that there was enough like DNA on the hairs. Because for hairs, you need to have like the root, not just the hair itself, in order to get DNA. And the fibers, I'm not too sure either. It could have just been that they had similar clothing or things like that. Like, there's a lot of explanations as to why they could have thought they belonged to him. But also, like I said, I just don't think that they had enough to test or had really enough evidence. Meanwhile, Danny went back to robbery. This led him constantly running from the cops. And in one pursuit, he led them straight to his campsite. When they got there, they found evidence linking Danny to the murders, as well as a bag of cash covered in pink dye from a bank robbery that he had committed. On the run, Danny was able to commit a few more robberies, including a car, including Grand Theft Auto. And he had managed to make it to Ocala, Florida. I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry, Floridians, if I got that wrong. But anyway, he he went there under a new name, Jesse Lang, and attempted to rob another Winn-Dixie. 
what had happened there was was a little bit different because the store's bookkeeper was able to call the police from a phone in front of the store. Now, this led to a car chase with the police, and Danny wound up wound up crashing the stolen car and attempted to flee on foot, but obviously he was caught and arrested on September 8th of 1990. Which, thank God, I mean... I know he wasn't arrested for murder, but at least he was arrested for something and it got him off of the streets. Because who knows if he would have killed again if he wasn't caught. I mean, it's definitely a huge possibility. Who knows? He might have went and seen another movie and got another sign from one of the characters saying that he needed to go somewhere else and kill more people. So, you know, obviously the murders he committed were absolutely atrocious, but at least at this point he, he was caught. The following year, Danny was sentenced for the multiple armed robberies, but it wouldn't be until February of 1994. Yep, you heard me. 1994. That's four years. These poor families had to wait for justice. Yeah. So in 1994, early 1994, Danny finally pled guilty to five of the eight murders he committed. But before he was put to death, Danny admitted that he committed the murders of the Grissoms to a pastor. He admitted this to a pastor and actually to his attorney as well. And his attorney claims that Danny did it because he wanted to clear the name of the man who was being suspected of these killings. I don't have his name and I'm sorry. Danny eventually was put to death by lethal injection on October 25th, 2006. Which I have to say that's kind of quick for our justice system usually for the death penalty it takes a bit longer um i am i am opposed to the death penalty i just i don't agree with it you know it's not gonna bring the people he killed back and i don't know like i understand people wanting revenge i get that I just, I don't think it's good for anyone, to be honest. I, it's also, in my opinion, it's also just an easy way out, you know? Like, I don't, I don't know how you're really punishing them, especially when, from what all we know about the prison system today and how horrible it is and just how shitty it is. I can't imagine a punishment better than being locked away for the rest of your life having no contact with the outside world and just having to live with hope the hopelessness of this is your every day nothing new is ever going to happen nothing is ever going to change for you you're never getting out so that's my opinion but i understand that people have issues with that and for the fact that you know it's like your tax dollars are being spent for that but it's like why can't the government just take care of it why does it have to be our tax dollars that have to go towards keeping them alive? But, again, we also have private prisons. So, yeah. I don't necessarily know that I feel like Danny was trying to be honorable for wanting to clear the man who was, or the person who was suspected for the killing the Grissoms. I mean, obviously it's a good thing that he said he wanted to do it because it would clear that person. And... To be fair, it took him a while to do so, so I'm not too sure. I mean, he was convicted of the murders in 1994, 
And then it's not until like the early 2000s when he decides to, to clear this guy's name. So I don't know. Maybe Danny found God and was trying to do one good thing before he died. I don't know. You know, I just think it sucks for me. I And I really didn't think about this until re-researching this part that these eight murders might not have been solved if Danny didn't confess. I know they found evidence of the, you know, the murders at the campsite, but, you know, I can't, I can't say for sure that, like, that evidence wouldn't have been compromised because he was living out in the woods. You know, tents obviously provide some sort of protection, you know, from the rain and things like that, but still like he's out in the woods i just can't see that the evidence was well preserved and wasn't in any way compromised from that you know just because i mean there's also animals you could have stolen fabric to make nests there's just like i said there's just so many factors of him living out in the woods who knows if the evidence was fully intact and uncompromised i would have to say the Gainesville Ripper is one of many cases I've studied that over the years that demonstrates how childhood trauma can affect the psychology of the person that they grow up to be. Obviously, Danny's piece of shit father not only created but nurtured an environment that breeds serial killers. You know, I know you're going to say, but his brother Kevin didn't become a serial killer. I know. I would argue that Kevin is the exception to this really sadistic and fucked up rule. I think Danny is truly like the rule of what happens to you and Danny and Kevin, sorry, is the exception. I think maybe if Danny was in a different setting and got any sort of help and counseling he needed. Or, you know, maybe if in, even if he had to stay in the same family setting, maybe if he got counseling and you know but even that it's a whole a whole ordeal in of itself because you have to find the right counselor and the right person to talk to and it's not the same for everyone it can finding a therapist or a counselor can truly be very difficult but you know if he would have at least had something i would hope that someone would have tried to help him work through and deal with everything that he was going through and you know obviously like i said he had all of these hand injuries as well so again had he been in a different family he might not have sustained all of those head injuries as a child you know he might have actually there's a possibility he could have actually turned out to be a decent human being if his life wasn't lived under different circumstances i think and, of course, we will learn that more as we go through all these other cases that I have for you. And we'll be able to discuss some similarities and differences along the way. With that, that's all I've got for you on the Gainesville Ripper, a.k.a. Danny Rowling. Next week, I have a special episode for you guys. So I'm very excited for you guys to hear it. Make sure you comment, like subscribe click the link in the description of this episode there is a link for how you can um, support 
not only True Crime and Academia, but the Ivory Tower Boiler Room altogether. Um, so please, please, please click that. As always, thank you so much for listening. I truly, truly appreciate the amount of support that I'm getting from you guys, honestly. It is so wonderful, and it makes me so happy, and I'm so touched. And I just, I really appreciate it. You guys make this, make doing this so much worthwhile, more worthwhile for me. I swear I can speak today. <laughs> all right. Until next week, guys, please stay safe out there. Do all the things you're supposed to do. Please keep yourselves and other people that may be more vulnerable around you that you don't realize safe. You know? It doesn't cost you anything to be a good person. I know the holiday is coming up. Sometimes we let our guards down. And please have a great Thanksgiving for my American listeners. Enjoy your turkey day. Eat all of the food. Do not let anyone shame you for eating too much. That is exactly what this holiday is for. <laughs> all right, guys. I will see you next week. True Crime and Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. To support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and its podcasts like True Crime and Academia, click the link at the bottom of the show notes and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and at True Crime and Academia. A special thank you to Anne-Sophie Anderson, composer and performer of the song Scorpio, which is this podcast's theme song. As always, thank you for listening, and we appreciate your support.